0: So uh, again, uh, glad to be able to be with you today. Uh, Keith continues to feel better. He's he's had a good week. After about middle week is where he really improved from having COVID. So that's good news. So continue to remember him in prayer as he does recover. Uh, in terms of what we're going to be talking about today, though, we're, we've been looking at this idea of taste and see. What does it mean to taste and see? Well, today, the question that I'm going to ask along that topic is, is it worth it? Now, I wonder, I want you to think just for a moment, how many of you have already made decisions that you asked the question, is it worth it today? One of them was, is it worth it to come here? Now, you may not have thought that because you've become, it's become a habit to you, but in your mind, that plays in there. You just, many of you are now, oh yes, it's always worth it to go to church. But if I were to ask you that same question about, is it worth it to go to a coastal Carolina Clemson football game when it's 95 degrees outside, I guarantee you, many of you in this room would ask, is it worth it even if you had tickets? But if it was Notre Dame, it'd be a different story, right? That's reality. That's reality. Every day we face the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it to get up and go to the store because I really, really want some chocolate chip cookies right now? You make that calculation. Every day we make those calculations. Sometimes they're big. Like, is it worth it to change jobs, to change an occupation? Is it worth it to move from Greenville, South Carolina area to Alabama, to California for another job? Many of you have had to make those type of decisions in your life. And you make calculations. Is it worth it? I remember the first big calculation that I was asked to make was, it was an area that I wasn't really prepared to look at, to, to think about, but it just popped up on my screen. One day, my parents said, we're going to go to Disney World. I was in fifth grade. Folks, it was a different era, a different time to today. I had no clue what they meant when they said, we're going to go to Disney World. Yeah, I watched Disney every Sunday night it came on. Yeah, I watched that. But in terms of what Disney World meant, no clue. They said it was going to be a long journey. Take like a long time to get down there. And I was sort of excited because I have two older brothers who were always pests to me. And they weren't going. <laughs> so that I automatically put, is it worth it in a good category? But I had never really even heard of Disney World. And when you thought of Disney World back then, folks, it wasn't Animal Kingdom and this kingdom and that place. It was just Magic Kingdom, the kid rides, and those type of things. But the question I asked, even in fifth grade, okay, but we could go to the beach instead, but we're going to do something different. So that question was in my mind. Was it it going to be worth it? Of course, we went on the trip, and I still remember being so fascinated by Peter Pan in that ride. I even remember being so 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 much hating. It's a small world after all, even in fifth grade. (laughs) But I remember 20,000 leagues under the sea and thinking you're really underwater, and it was really going to be dangerous. I remember the haunted mansion and being scared to death by this appearance of something that was in the car beside me. But to be honest, what made the trip more worth it than anything wasn't anything I saw at Disney World. It was all the alligators we saw at Alligator Farm. That was what I really enjoyed about the trip. (laughs) But I came back saying, yes, it was worth it. Was it a long ride? Yes, it was. Did I really understand what I was getting into? No, I didn't. But I trusted that my parents would know what was right and what would be enjoyable more so than even the beach. We make those calculations every day. Is it worth it? Is it going to be worth it? Sometimes they have no meaning at all, like whether you eat chocolate chip cookies or not. But sometimes it affects your whole life about where you're going to live, what job you have. And it's determining who you're going to marry. All those things are there. And so, as we look at the Bible, the Bible is full of people who have to ask that question. Is it worth it? Is what God telling me to do, is it really worth what I will have to do? What I'll have to give up? To become a Christian, you make that choice. Is it worth what God is promising me to have a relationship with me, that he's going to provide for me, and that I will spend eternity with him? Is that worth it when I really can't see it and I really don't know it? And before you become a Christian, that's what you struggle with. And even, quite frankly, after you become a, question, a Christian, we can still sometimes struggle with that. Is this worth it? Well, like I said, the Bible asks that question over and over again, and I want us to look at one place that does that in Hebrews. We're going to look at chapter 11 of Hebrews today. It's in the New Testament. And here, the the writer of Hebrews is spending a great deal of time talking about How God, through Jesus Christ, has come and fulfilled the things that were promised in what we call the Old Testament. And how Jesus is becoming the Messiah, the one that they had looked for, is now fulfilled and completed. And that he is the one you should follow. And the writer, at this point in time, comes to a place where he starts looking at what we know of people, famous people in the Old Testament. And comparing what they went through to what we and what the people he was writing would have to believe in order to follow God. In other words, is it worth it? When you first read the beginning of Hebrews 11, you, you hear about Abel, you hear about Enoch, then you hear about Noah, and then you hear about Abram. And then he comes to this Part where he sort of sums up the first part of these mentions. He says, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. All these people, well, let's just take two of them that he talks about Noah. What did Noah, by faith, have to do? Had to build a boat, a massive boat. He had to endure everybody looking at him saying, this guy's lost his marbles. He didn't know what he's doing. He had to endure that. What did Abram have to give up? What did he have to, by faith, change in his life? Well, Abram's family had moved from Ur to Haran and had settled there. And in that settling in Haran, they had done well. From what we can gather from the text, they were pretty prosperous. Haran was a a good city, a nice city. And so, what did Abram have to give up? He had to give up where he was, settled and comfortable And go live as a nomad to a region that he had never seen before. And he didn't even know where it was going to be until he got there. It's a lot to give up. How many of you, if I said, oh, I'm going to give you a job and it's going to be a little ways away. You just get there. I'll show you the way. And once you get there, I'll show you what to do. How many of you would leave? If you're comfortable in what you're doing now. It is only by faith that Abram makes that jump. All of them, it's interesting that he says, were still living by faith when they died. Why were they still living by faith? Notice what he says. They haven't they hadn't received the things promised. Did Abram have a full promised land that he lived in? No. He was still living in tents. He was still providing for the area that he was living in and moving from place to place, from area to area for the sheep and other things. They only saw it from a distance. They saw them and welcomed them from a distance. In other words, there was enough proof to say, this is worth it. God has provided for me and God will provide for me. I can trust in his promise. And quite frankly, as a Christian, we do that as well. We understand the provision that God has for us in our sins being forgiven through Jesus Christ. We accept that and we experience that. But we fully don't see what heaven's going to be. We know, we hear things of what it will be like. No more tears, no more sighing, no more suffering, no more pain but we haven't seen it ourselves yet. And so we too are called to live by faith in something that while seeing it from a distance, we're not there yet. Notice what else it says they had to do. They had to admit that they were aliens and strangers on earth. So not only were they looking at something they had not yet had, But they were also living in an environment where they didn't feel comfortable. Where they were going against the flow. Folks, it hasn't changed. We're also asked to go against the flow. The path to destruction is wide. The path to life is narrow, Jesus said. A lot of people or telling you to go a different way. But you have to choose to say, no, I'm going to do it differently, even if it costs me. He goes on and says, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they'd left, then they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Noah and Abram were not satisfied with what was in front of them. What their society was offering. And they said there had to be more. And God pointed to them too, the more. The same thing is true for us. We're aliens, we're strangers. This is not our home. As a believer, part of the signs of maturity is for you to understand more and more that this is not where you belong. That there is a home that we will all be in as a believer. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy this life, that we don't look to survive in this life. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that you just give up everything you're doing and just focus on what will be. It's living in the presence, knowing that God will provide for your future but understanding that there is a future that is different than what this world offers. Now, the world will tell you there are a lot of different ways to go to find happiness, to find that place that you're supposed to be. Some will say, just get X amount of money, and you'll be there. I remember when I first started uh, Job World, it was a million dollars. If you had a million dollars in retirement, You'd be okay. Now they're saying it's at least two, if not three. Blows your mind. Who makes up these numbers? Who does these things? But if you aren't careful, you start listening and you chase those things to the point they become your God. They become the only thing you think about. It may be a career. I want to make a name for myself. You may make that name. But where will you be a hundred years from now? Who will care what name you made? That's the reality that the world does not tell. And so by faith, we have to not only say, there is a direction that God wants me to go and I believe in it. But you also have to say, and I understand that the things of this world aren't what the end-all be-all is about. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell the people that he's writing to. Because they're facing persecution, folks, for their faith. People are attacking them for their faith. And he's trying to show them it's okay, even if you're attacked. God is there and there is a path. He goes on and finishes the statement by saying, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That place that Abram left in Haran, yes, he would be wandering. Yes, he would be living in tents. But that was only short term. He would be in a city that was better than any city that had ever been built on this earth. That's a heavenly one. And that's what he grabbed hold of. And that's what allowed him by faith to live as he experienced life here. But the big thing isn't that as much as it is what I think is an amazing statement. God is not ashamed to be called their God. God is not ashamed to be called their God. God is not ashamed to be called Brad Barton's God. Wow. That'll make you think. Put your name in there. God is not ashamed to be called your God. He wants that relationship. He treasures that relationship. He loves that relationship. That's part of the promise of being a believer. So he goes through that section, and then he goes and gives even more examples of people in the Old Testament who've lived their faith, who've given up much for a place that they had not yet seen, but trusted was going to be there. And then he turns to the people that he's writing to, and he says, okay, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Therefore, since we got all the examples that I just told you about of people who are willing to live by faith for a God and trust in the God who would provide for them, what are you called to do? You're called to say, look at their example. Now notice what he says, you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Are they the ones doing the saving? No. No. They're the ones who have witnessed God saving them. And they're there to cheer you on as you see God saving you and changing your life. That's what's important. Their example for us to see. So what are we supposed to see? Well, he's just getting ready to set up a big track meet, if you want to say. Biggest one, if you want to think of, uh, that would be a, a glorious event. In Rome, track was, was important. Races were important. People would come out, just like a Clemson football game, people would come out to a big track meet. Same thing would happen. So he uses that. First he says, you got all these witnesses who are there to watch you run your race, to support you, to cheer you on. But then he says, this is how you run your race. First thing he says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. What hinders you from running a race, a physical race? Let's say we're all running 100 meters. What would hinder you from running a race? Well, what if you decided, oh, it's a little chilly outside. I think I'm going to put on the heaviest overcoat I've got. How well are you going to run that race? Not very well. Or maybe you're in a swim meet, and you say, you know, I I want to be able to hold my breath right. I'm just going to wear scuba gear, and I'm going to try to be the fastest I can be. Good luck. Are there anything wrong with those things? Not necessarily, but are, are they appropriate for the race? They're not. He says, get rid of the things that can hinder you. Part of what can hinder us, we just talked about. There's nothing wrong with money until it becomes a recession. There's nothing wrong for playing for retirement until it becomes who you are. These things aren't sinful in themselves until we make them to be something that they were never meant to be. They were never meant to be part of the race that we're called to run for God. So the first thing he says, get rid of those things that can hinder. Then he says, and the sin that so easily entangles. So I want you to think, okay, we're, I was not a sprinter. In middle school, I, I ran distance and got pretty good at it. But let's say we're running a 1,600-meter race, pretty long race. And I get to the starting blocks, and, and the reason why I'm choosing long distance because I don't want to bend down and all that for for real quick race so you're standing in the starting blocks well you look good you've gotten rid of what hinders you but in front of you you left your bag you left all your things out and so you're going to have to jump over those to start the race in fact you left out your bag and it's open and so you're probably going to get your legs stuck in it the minute you start running It's going to entangle you. It's going to keep you from running the race the way you should. This is what he says. Get rid of everything that hinders. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Sin will keep you from running your best race. Can you still run the race as a believer? Yes, you can, but you need forgiveness. You need God's grace as a part of your race. Because it will trip you up. And it will cause you to lose focus of what you're doing and what you're supposed to be about. So the other thing he tells us is to get rid of that sin in our life. It's important to do so. But after looking at two things that you're to get rid of, he then comes to talk about the race itself. Again, he says that statement, let us. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. A couple of things I want you to see here. One, the race is already marked out. God has a direction he wants you to go. Your race is different than my race. But he has that race set out for each one of us. Of what we're supposed to be, of who we are and how we lead others to see who he is. It's marked out for us. I remember uh, running a, a half marathon for a fundraiser, again, middle, no, this was high school. And I remember that I was following markings. There were little just signs posted with footprints on them, red footprints. I still remember they were red. And about halfway through the race, we stopped seeing red footprints. Uh-oh. We were running a race that was no longer part of the race. We were off course. In fact, there was a truck falling around catching people who were doing what we were, the, the people who were really not able to follow our tracks. And instead of... We were doing really well. We were pretty fast. But you know what? He had the... the the mindset to do, he put us at the back of the pack. And we had to go through all those people again. The race is marked out. God is not going to lead you astray. Now you may go off the path. You may choose to run a race that isn't meant to be the race. But God's going to clearly say, this is where I want you to be. This is what I want you to be doing. A lot of people talk about, how do I know the will of of God in my life? The number one thing you know to know the will of God is to be in the will of God. To do what you know God wants you to do today and trust that God's going to provide for you tomorrow. That's living by faith. That's understanding that this race is marked out and that there is a journey, but it is a journey that is well worth it. The next thing he says there is run with perseverance, the race. Again, middle school, first time I ran 1,600 meters, I was going to be the fastest guy there. I was going to win that race, and I took off like I was going to be the fastest guy, and I was for the first lap. Second lap, I started struggling a little bit. By the end of all the laps, guess what? I was in the back of the pack. Why? Because I thought it was going to be a sprint. It's not about a one-time event. It's about a lifetime is what the writer is saying. I know, again, in medical school for me, in terms of my Christianity, that's where I struggled with whether I wanted to believe in God or not. Did did I accept who Jesus was? Yes, but did I want to live for him? That was my struggle. There were many camps that I went to, Christian camps, where I met my wife, and I'd be all on fire after going to that camp and said, man, I'm going to live for Jesus. And then about two months later, I wasn't living for Jesus. Why? Because I was looking at the race as a sprint. And it's not a sprint. It's a lifelong journey. And it's understanding that about the race that we're called to live. It's not just a moment in time. It's every time. That running with perseverance says, this is going to take work. This is going to take sacrifice. But it's worth it. Because I believe by faith that God has a plan for me. To enjoy life the best that I can here, but also that his provision goes far beyond here. So that's the first thing is to understand the race and run it in a way that that we understand it's a lifelong journey. The second thing he says is, okay, well, how are you going to get through this? How are you going to persevere? And he gives you the answer right away. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Every once in a while, I'll watch NASCAR, every once in a while, Um, and they talk about how guys have to drive with the rear view mirror, looking who's behind them and what they have to do and that type of thing, so that they know what the guy's going to do behind them, but when it gets to the end of the race, you always hear the sportscasters say, they just need to run their race, don't worry about what's behind them, keep a focus on what's in front of them and that way they see the prize and they'll do the right thing folks can you imagine running a race and looking back all the time to see are they catching up on me that's not how to run a race you look at what the goal is and that's what he's saying here fix our eyes on jesus why because he's the author and perfector of our faith. The author, not, a lot of translations use pioneer. What does pioneer mean? What does author mean? It means they have already run the race. As pioneer, he carved the course, so to speak. He set it up. Has already been through it. And then he says, perfecter. Well, he's coach? You want to know how to run the race? Listen to your coach. Who's your coach? It's Jesus. How do you get to know more of who Jesus is? You taste and see by reading, reading the Bible, and saying, God, how does this apply to me? How can my race be better based on what you're telling What I read in the Bible. You're looking for... T- That's what he's talking about. And then notice what he says as he defines who Jesus is. He says, Jesus, who for the joy set before him. Do you realize Jesus also had a goal? That goal was joy. What is the joy? What was the goal that Jesus was, why was he here? The ultimate goal was love. To experience the love, not only of the Trinity of God the Father and the Holy Spirit, but to experience the love that we're called to have for Him and that He has for us. That's His joy. is seeing people come to Him and recognizing who He is and experiencing that love. So that was Jesus' goal, to to bring us to a point where we understand who he is and how much love he has for us. And he was willing to run his race, even though it cost the cross. The most hellish way that Roman government could figure how to kill somebody. Jesus was willing not only to endure, but more than that, notice what it says. He endured the cross But notice what it says next, scorning its shame. All the world said the worst way you could possibly die is to die on a cross. It shows you're just nobody. And Jesus doesn't look at it and just say, well, I'll endure it. He says, they're wrong. I'm going to use it to show how much I love you. instead of it being something that was meant for hate and the ultimate achievement of hate, God turned it around and used it as the ultimate achievement of love. That's the power of Jesus' race in our life. Not only does he endure the cross, he makes it into a way of salvation. That's powerful. So who should you listen to? Somebody who can do that. Because as the writer says as he goes on further, you're you're going to suffer temptation, you're going to suffer persecution, but you will not suffer as much as Jesus ever did. So listen to the coach. He's going to tell you how to run this race. What was Jesus' reward? Not only was it joy... Of love, but he was rewarded with being at the right hand of God the Father. He took his ultimate place of where he was supposed to be. And so the writer says, Consider him who endured such oppositions from sinful man so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And folks, I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of preachers don't preach this. But as a Christian, you're going to grow weary and you're going to lose heart. At least that temptation is going to be there. Where you burn yourself out. Where you're all excited and then you're not. What happens to make you weary? What happens to make you think about losing heart? You take your eyes off Jesus. Jesus. You take your eyes off the prize, and you focus it on things that shouldn't be focused on. Sometimes people grow weary and lose heart because of a church, quite frankly. because a church asks of you more than it should. It makes you do things that God never called you to. They're not wrong but it's not what you were called to be a part of. It's finding your place in community. Being what God calls us to be in the midst of a church. As individuals and as a group. Sometimes you can lose heart because people you have trusted fail you. We read of it all the time, of pastors who fail congregations. Who failed God. And if you have your focus on them versus Jesus, you'll lose heart. But if your focus is on Jesus, you'll be able to endure that pain and be able to understand what does that mean? How does it affect me? How can I pray for the person who's fallen? All those things are possibilities when you run a race because there's opposition out there. But the key is to keep our focus on the coach, on the one who has run the race, who's succeeded far more than we ever will, but has given us the opportunity to run, to endure, to persevere. And to enjoy the race. That's what is the big question. Is it worth it? There have, maybe if you've been a Christian a while, there have been times in your life probably where you've asked that question legitimately. Is it worth it? And you may have struggled with it, and you might be struggling with that question now. Is it worth it to be a Christian? Look at what I'm giving up. Psalm 73, if you want to read about a guy who's struggling with that question, Psalm 73 is about a guy who struggles with that question. Is it worth it? I look around, I see what everybody else got and what I've given up. Is it worth it? There's nothing wrong with the question. What God wants you to do is go to the conclusion of the question. And when you do, when you pursue, yes, God, I'm burned out. I need help. There's a God who says, as a coach, this is what you need. Even when you're weary, even when you've lost heart, here's what can get you through. Here's what will get you to where you're excited again. Trust me. Abram had parts and places where he burned out, where he struggled. God, how am I going to be a father as many of people as many as sands on the seashore when I haven't had a child yet? He struggled with that one. But by faith, he learned. And that's the great news about this race that we're called to run. There's a God who says, I love you and I care for you. And you're not just living life to live life and to be a dust speck later on. You're living life because it has value and it has worth and it has meaning. Not just in this life, but more importantly, in the life to come. That's his promise. Our choice is to do what Abram did, to do what Noah did. By faith, we run the race. Accepting what God has done for us, that he's marked the race, that he's provided the way through his son, Jesus Christ, and we're then called to run. Knowing there are obstacles, there are things that we've got to be careful of, there are things that will attack us. But there is a God who says in those places, in those times, I too provide. And there ultimately is a finish line. And it's worth it. When I was, I used the terms 100 meters and 1600 meters because that's what we use today. When I was in middle school, it was 100 100 yards. It was 400 yards. Terms changed over time. I couldn't tell you who was the fastest guy when I was running track in 1977. Couldn't tell you the name of the person on my team, let alone the person who was the fastest person in the world at that time. Any of y'all know? I doubt it. Why? Because it's ultimately not important. What is important is that by faith, we believe in a God who says, you matter. I care for you. I love you. And I want you to run a race that's going to be hard, but you will see it's well worth it. And I will help you on the way. And the reward will be great. That's his promise. We have to choose by faith. To believe that or not. Yes there are tangible things that you can see. There are many times in my life. No question God has been there. No question as I look back at the Bible. And look at prophecies. No question. That the God I read of and the Bible is the God that is the real God. But ultimately, it still is a faith choice. I have to believe that he is the answer. And so do you. And so do everybody, no matter whether they come to church ever or not. It ultimately becomes a question, do I believe there's a God for me? I'm willing to trust Him and His provision. That provision is made through Jesus Christ. Value it. Remember it as you run your race. Let's keep our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. Father, thank you that you have given us a race to run, that this life isn't just meaningless. So much around us, if we really stop and look at it, it means nothing, even though the world pays it as, as being important. Forgive us for the times that we get lost in that, that we don't understand that there is more value in you than the things of this world. And Father, may we remove the things that hinder us the sin that so easily entangles us. And may we set to run the race that you've set before us, focusing our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who gives us the perseverance, the strength, the understanding of how to run the race you've called us to run. Thank you that that path leads to you to a relationship where there is no more sign, no more pain, no more suffering. When love is expressed to its ultimate expression. We look forward to that day, even as we run the race of this day. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.